0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 110. On today's episode, we're talking about the beheading of John the Baptist with Dr. Nathan Shedd. Dr. Nathan Shedd recently completed his PhD at St. Mary's University under the supervision of Dr. Chris Keith and Dr. James Crossley. And his published dissertation is entitled A Dangerous Parting, The Beheading of John the Baptist in Early Christian Memory, published by Baylor University Press. Dr. Shedd also teaches New Testament online for Johnson University and William Jessup University. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Dr. Grace Emmett, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our Christian Anti-Judaism series, in this episode, we're talking about the beheading of John the Baptist, and specifically the traditions that developed uh, around this graphic and and violent story, which kind of go in some sad, anti-Jewish ways. Chris, Josh, and Grace, what were some of the takeaways that you had from this conversation that we had with Dr. Shedd?
1: I really appreciate how we can look at the text of Mark and the story of John the Baptist and kind of figure out how that applies to us today. And and, and I think Nathan gave us some great strategies to walk out of the text into our lives and make sure that we are intentional about the way we read texts and think about um, ancient sources and how they impact us.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed this recording a lot, partly because Nathan, Dr Shedd, um, is a very good friend of mine, so it's really um, great to have him on and to hear a bit more about his work. And I think similarly to what Josh said, there's a part where Nathan talks about how violence begets violence, and I thought that was really striking in terms of thinking about the graphic violence of the story, but also the way that story's been retold and weaponized in anti-Jewish ways, in a sort of particular, in an early Christian context, but then also thinking um also, in modern discourse, uh, and what our ethical imperative is as modern readers to resist that and to combat that. Uh, so that was uh, quite a powerful takeaway for me.
3: Yeah, I really appreciated the way that Dr. Shed re- really highlights the way that the the beheading narrative is used and reused time and time again for uh, different political uh, uh, and by political, we we're talking about a broad range of, of political. Um, so engagement in the marketplace and the way that it is keyed for for memory and used in that way so that it can, it can be used against different groups of people, be they Jewish uh, groups or even sometimes other Christian groups. Um, and so the way that that plays itself out throughout history uh, and even in our modern context. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Nathan Shedd.
0: Well, Dr. Shedd, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Yeah, thank you for having me. really appreciate the opportunity.
0: So let's talk about your book, A Dangerous Parting. Can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of that book?
4: Yeah, yeah. So uh, my main argument um, in the book is that the uh, the early reception history of John the Baptist's beheading uh, is characterized by what I call a dangerous synchronicity. So on the one hand, we have uh, the memory of John's beheading uh, being the site of what I call commemorative uh, negotiations of the degradation of uh, John's bodily mutilation. So Mark, for example, uh, will stress features that typically highlight uh, the emasculation of a male victim of violence, uh, such as the public display of a uh, broken uh, body um, and the broadcasting of uh, a loss of control on the part of the victim. Uh, but Mark will also counterbalance uh, this portrayal uh, by stressing features that uh, by stressing that John the Baptist's uh, beheading really uh, broadcasts Antipas's lack of control as a ruler, um, including his ignorance of his own uh, loss of control. But on the other hand, um, as the tradition of John's beheading uh, is activated in early Christian expressions of Jewish and Christian difference in the second and third centuries, Uh, The degradation of his beheading is negotiated in uh, dangerous anti-Jewish directions. And so it's this sort of second dimension uh, that intersects with the theme of uh, the podcast today.
2: And what's what's particularly um, illustrative about John the Baptist in terms of thinking about the way that anti-Jewish rhetoric develops in early Christian literature?
4: Um, yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that uh, John the Baptist is uh, a key figure in the parting of the ways. And for those listeners who may or may not be familiar with the parting of the ways, uh, that uh, phrase is a sort of scholarly shorthand to describe the early relationship between Judaism and Christianity, specifically their separation into two distinguishable uh, phenomenon, uh, phenomena. Um, I think that what makes John the Baptist a key figure for the emergence of Christian anti-Judaism is that he is he's able to play two roles really well in early Christian rhetoric. In one role, he is this he is this great ally to early Christian ideology concerning uh, concerning Jesus's messianic credentials, his identity as a Christian symbol enables Origen to underscore the gravity of his uh, mistreatment by uh, John's enemies, um, whom Origen likens to contemporary Jews. So, in other words, uh, John's affinity with Jesus in early Christian rhetoric exacerbates the severity of supposedly Jewish maltreatment of God's uh, anointed spokespersons. But at the same time, John the Baptist can also play another role. Uh, he's not just this Christian symbol, but he's also this uh, symbol of Jewish inferiority uh, to Christians and Christianity. Um, and Origen is a culprit here. He sees uh, specifically actually in the beheaded body of John the Baptist, a portrait of Jewish inferiority uh, to, uh, to Christianity.
3: Thanks, Nathan. Um, one of the things I, f- I really find uh, great, about your book is that you engage not just uh with the you know uh, an exegetical perspective but also uh with the social memory of uh, john and and thinking about what not just what is recorded but what how it was remembered i'm wondering if can you um run us through that approach to um to john the baptist and also maybe give us a sketch uh, a short sketch of his engagement within the the memory space and and what actually happens within the text and the memory of the text?
4: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Yeah, so it's really hard to boil down. Uh, Basically, uh, social memory theory uh, is an interdisciplinary uh, theoretical framework uh, whose theorists study the intersection of the received past and the present in individual and collective articulations of the past. Right. So we have an any instance of memory, um, uh, any instance where we're activating tradition from the past uh, represents a complex interaction between the past and the present. Uh, The past can never be uh, recovered in a pristine form because the past is only ever approached from the vantage point of the present. Right. And the past is always remade to reflect um, the present. We can't um, remember the past in a language uh, that we don't know, um, using symbols uh, that don't mean anything to us in the present. So the past is always sort of in flux. Um, it's always going to uh, resemble uh, moving pictures, as uh, one what one uh, scholar sort of uh, uses as a metaphor. And so what that does uh, for John the Baptist's beheading and how I sort of conceptualize uh, the reception of his beheading in the early centuries is it allows me to see uh, those uh, features of the gospel texts uh, that constrain uh, the amount of uh, manipulation of the past that goes on. Uh, in this case, the inherited past, right? The gospel is not as you know, the actual past, but as, as uh, themselves, a received and uh, inherited past. And it allows me to see um, how uh, that past is then remade to reflect the social context from which different authors are talking about John the Baptist. So uh, we see this in Justin Martyr and in Origen, in particular, two highly influential early Christian thinkers. Uh, Justin Martyr um, will use the image of John's uh, severed head on a platter uh, to to establish uh, John's identity as a prophet, but then he will Activate that in order to justify uh, horrific uh, uh, conditions that Jews are facing uh, in the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Right, so he will he will he will use John's uh, beheading to justify violence that is being applied uh, to Jews who are now refugees uh, who are banished from Judea and Jerusalem. So we have the past itself that is being activated but it's also being activated in completely new ways that are beyond the contours of the first century.
3: Yeah, and I find it interesting, um, you've mentioned origin and just a martyr. There are other examples of uh, the social memory activation you talk about keying, they key the memory of John the Baptist for to unlock it for your audience. I'm interested in whether or not... Uh, you've considered internal Jewish memories, so uh, rather than Christian memories of John the Baptist within Judaism, uh, Jewish memories of John the Baptist, such as that of Josephus in Antiquities, where he, you know, pla- essentially places um, Herod's military disaster at um, with Aratus on Herod's shoulders because of the head of John the Baptist.
4: Yes, uh, there's a very similar thing going on uh, in Josephus as in Justin Martyr. That's a really good observation. One point, though, we have to that we have to make, though, is uh, Josephus doesn't mention the beheading of John the Baptist. He mentions the execution of John the Baptist. Um, And so my book is focused on what's going on with the actual the actual physical violence, the the beheading, the nitty gritty stuff. So I don't I don't spend a lot of time on the Josephus passage. for that reason in particular, among, among some other reasons. Um, but there is, uh, as you say, um, keen going on there, um, where Herod is being punished for, uh, for his treatment of the Baptist, for executing him. And it's the same thing that's going on with Justin Martyr. Um, but it's just a, a new uh, century and a new context um, where the, the Jews are now uh, refugees, and right, rightfully so, according to Justin Martyr, because of how they uh, treated John the Baptist, right?
2: So for you, the focus really is on the beheading and the significance of the violence of that act. I know that's quite important in the book. Can you tell us a bit more about why you've got that specific focus rather than just um, his death in general?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I think any author who sets out to do a research project, especially uh, this was originally my PhD thesis, um, is looking for ways to to narrow the focus so that they're not completely overwhelmed by by every little piece of evidence that they have to consider, um, and for me, uh, I really wanted to focus in on the violence of John's uh, death because uh, because our earliest portrayal is really interested in the violence of John's death. There's uh, an intense focus on it, um, where the the episode is framed where where Herod Antipas is considering. Uh, whether or not john the baptist might have been revived after being specifically beheaded and then pretty much half of the episode is just us following the head um, of john the baptist right you have the request for the head um, by uh, the uh, by the daughter after she consults uh, with her mother you have the the beheading in prison and then you have the the delivery of the head as it passes from person to person and so textually the head is just broadcast for us, just and it's just screaming at us from the text, basically. And then uh, the episode ends, of course, with uh, the head being separated from its body's uh, burial. So one reason why I focused on the violence of John's death is, is because the text itself is really interested in it, and I think violence naturally sort of piques our uh, curiosity. Uh, but also, uh, violence tends to beget violence, and so I was really interested to see how um, early Christians uh, coped with the trauma of John's uh, beheading.
1: I would ask what the significance of the display on the platter and how that may have contributed to what it, whatever's happening later in, fu- in the future, like the, the outright display of everything.
4: Yeah, so in Mark, the uh, public display of John's head Of course, uh, it represents um, a typical feature of ancient discourses of beheading that that stress uh, the public display of beheading. And and a lot of times these displays uh, can stress uh, the degradation of the beheaded victim. And Mark seems to acknowledge that, but at the same time, uh, like I said uh, earlier, he he counterbalances that um, by showing how the display of John's head really showcases how Antipas has lost control, he's never shown to be aware of the fact that it was Herodias who requested the head, um, and he's never shown to be cognizant of the fact that Herodias ended up with the head, and he still doesn't know where the head ended up because he only gives the body of John away to the disciples who come and pick up john's body and uh, this is this is a ridiculing portrait of Antipas because as uh, Mark opens the episode with, he's, he's trying to protect John. And so this is, uh, I think, uh, ridiculing uh, Antipas for failing to uh, do his uh, duty as an efficacious ruler and uh, controlling uh, those under his, uh, under his rule. And he's shown uh, not to be in control at all. Um, and it's, it's textually uh, displayed for us as readers uh, by this transporting of, of John's head on this platter. Uh, but that's not how it continues to function in, uh, later, uh, in the later reception. Just a martyr will use uh, John's uh, severed head in order uh, to establish uh, John's identity as, as Elijah. Um, and in turn, he will uh, use uh, John's uh, Ligic uh, identity in order to combat with his uh, Christian rivals, but he'll do so at the expense of uh, Jewish ideology. Justin Martyr uh, likes to associate uh, Trifo with his uh, Christian rifles. He likes to try to liken uh, their ideologies to one another in order to present his own uh, thoughts on Christology, um, on matters of Elijah and the anointing of the Christ and uh, matters of pre-existence. He likes to uh, associate uh, trifo. Uh, he likes to associate his cri- uh, Christian rifles with uh, Jewish ideology. And John's beheading sort of gets swept up into that. And if you want to know specifically how that is so, I encourage you to, to pick up my book and read it.
3: I, I got to say, as you know, you've probably got the coolest book cover out of any of us. I mean, John got a more Seebeck. I've got a um, Brill. I don't have a book. Out. Yeah, I don't have a book cover. I mean, that's exactly happens. like, <laughs> and, but the Brill series doesn't have a book cover at all. You actually get like a cover for your book.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a pretty cool cover. I'm actually quite jealous. <laughs> there was uh, another cover that they had shown me as a potential one, and uh, it just looked a little bit too pixelated for me. But it was the, the one that we have right now. is almost at first you don't even realize that John's head is being, is there. It's sort of in the shadows, off to of the side, a little bit obscured. But this one, it is just a severed head, just like almost just like coming from the pages itself. And it looks awesome, but it was just a little bit too pixelated.
1: But. Why this topic? Why did you, why did you step into this topic? And how has it, it affected the way you've looked at New Testament scholarship and yeah. especially the parting of the ways aspect of it?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I sort of jokingly, anytime I get asked this question about you know why John the Baptist, I always like to say, well, why not John the Baptist? He's the coolest figure to read about in the New Testament. Um, I'm completely biased, of course, now, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's always he's always interested in me. Interested in me. Um, I had a teacher in my undergrad um, who had introduced uh, the relationship. Uh, between John the Baptist and Jesus and a historical Jesus seminar. And um, he had brought up this issue of whether or not John the Baptist was a disciple of Jesus or not. And at that point in my life, that question just blew my mind. And um, ever since then, I've always uh, just sort of been attached to John the Baptist and trying to, to understand who he is. Uh, all the gospels uh, try to frame their story of Jesus around this figure in, in different capacities. Um, even, uh, the gospel of John with this, with this poetic opening, uh, that has this sort of, of cosmic significance likes to insert into there. Hey, there's, there's also, there's also this figure, John the Baptist, that uh, he wasn't the Messiah, uh, but he came to proclaim, you know, who the Messiah was, that sort of thing. So I think John the Baptist is just a uh, crucial, uh, if we're to try to understand the gospels themselves. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then you asked how it, uh, sort of had, uh transformed sort of my understanding of reading ancient texts, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I grew up in a uh, quasi-fundamentalist evangelical uh, background in the U.S. Uh, that had a, a very high regard for, for scripture and, and the Bible. I remember uh, there were times where I would be uh, reading um, this was uh, this was actually later on, not whenever I grew up, but still networked with uh, still networked with uh, these churches. I remember reading um, a Jewish author at one point, and um, a, a church uh, leader came up to me and asked, you know, who you're reading, and I started to you know tell the church leader a little bit about uh, the author's background and how they were one of my favorite scholars, and I think they're one of the. know one of the one of the best scholars in the world right now on on historical jesus stuff or you know this other stuff i can't quite remember what exactly which book it was but i remember the the church leader's response was was really unfortunate they said that well they're obviously not that smart if they haven't come to faith in jesus um, that sort of thing and so whenever I got into researching John the Baptist and I started noticing uh, these, these anti-Jewish directions that the tradition started taking and these anti-Jewish patterns of thinking that reflected a lot of what I see still in the 21st century, I, I almost felt obligated to, to focus in on the anti-Jewish uh, components of, of the tradition's history. So there's a lot of ways that you can do an early reception history of John's beheading. Um, It's not all anti-Jewish, but there's a lot of it there. And there's a lot of it there in highly influential early Christian thinkers that I didn't want to ignore it uh, specifically because of my background. And I really wanted to, to teach people from my background why it's important and how we can sort of unlearn some of these patterns of thinking that we've inherited from the second and third centuries.
3: Thanks for that. Um, I'm interested in, in the engagement with John the Baptist in terms of anti-Semitism. You, you mentioned the, um, the fourth gospel and how the fourth gospel elevates uh, John the Baptist within its own context of uh, and, and, and its seemingly high degree of um, anti-Judaism within uh, the gospel, uh, although that is contested by different scholars. Uh, Interested, though, do you have any thoughts on why then John the, John the Baptist's death and beheading doesn't actually get a mention at all in the fourth gospel? It, it's, there's only the, the brief mention that um, that he gets thrown into prison in John 3.24, and we hear nothing more of John the Baptist. He just disappears and recedes into the background, yet he has already been set up as this paradigm of Jewishness within the gospel. Interesting your thoughts on that form of reception history. Part
4: of me wants to say that uh, the Gospel of John could have quite easily made use of John's beheading uh, to, to fit his uh, rhetorical uh, agenda, right? Uh, his stated purpose of manufacturing uh, belief in, in Jesus. And uh, and already in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, there is uh, this connection between uh, John's death and Jesus's death and, uh, and John being identified uh, as an Elijah. And the one thing, that I think that that might have caused uh, the writer, the author of the Gospel of John to say, no, I don't want to include his death is because of, of that exact same thing, though, uh, the Synoptic Gospel's connection of John to Elijah. Um, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is nothing more than a witness par excellence uh, to Jesus, and he outright denies that he's Elijah. And so to then include a tradition um, that uh, closely associates uh, John with, with Elijah, I think, could have uh, been seen as um, counterproductive to its purpose. Uh, but interestingly enough, I do know that I think it is Origen that still reads um, his uh, famous uh, phrase in the fourth gospel, he must increase, but I must decrease. Origen reads that as, our, as allegory for uh, John's beheading and Jesus's uh, uh, crucifixion. Right, And that fits well with, uh, with Origen's sort of anti-Jewish maneuvers. He sees in the bodies of John's uh, beheading and Jesus' crucif- uh, crucifixion this portrait of Jewish inferiority and Christian superiority. Uh, the Jews, he says, have this uh, broken, permanently disabled body uh, in John, whereas Christians have a crucified yet non-broken body of Jesus. Uh, and so because of that, uh, Christians have the gift of the Spirit. They're the source of uh, truth and uh, true uh, charismatic uh, superiority, that sort of thing. So it is interesting how it's not mentioned in the Gospel of John, but Origen finds a way to, to think that it is.
0: In the uh, Netflix version yeah. of the Gospel of John, the they did a series of gospel films there is a, a kind of visual allusion to um the fate of john the baptist as well at that part when he says he must
3: uh, increase i must decrease
4: awesome
3: certainly it doesn't seem that any form of anti-semitism after the shoah seems to be going away at any any pace there's an author down here in australia called john saffron who is a jewish author and comedian and his uh facebook um, Comments are regularly filled with anti-Semitic trash. Interestingly, one that popped up the other day was along the lines of "Your your, your people killed Jesus; you should be beheaded like John," um, which I I found just this stunning conflation of the two. I'd never never thought that that was actually a polemical engagement that was really well known, or even perhaps applicable in the 21st century interested in in what then your research on the beheading of john sort of t- t- tells us or teaches us about those sort of engagements
4: yeah that's that's a really great question let me actually start in what i think is the earliest portrayal of uh john's uh, beheading going back to mark 6. mark does something where he intimately interweaves uh, the crucifixion of jesus and the beheading of john the baptist where john's uh, beheading foreshadows and is likened to Jesus's crucifixion. And in the book, I I show this with a number of connections uh, that that the author makes. Uh, But what that establishes for future generations of Christians who then look back on Mark's text is an association then between John and Jesus. And then how Jesus is uh, treated is reflective of how John is treated. And so um, it enables uh, these uh, later authors Uh, to see any sort of uh, disbelief in Jesus as mimicking uh, how John and Jesus were treated originally in the first century, right? And these ideas, like you said, uh, continue to persist, I mean, exhaustingly in the 21st century. Um, There is a active white supremacist group uh, right now in the U.S., um, and their doctrinal statement explicitly Uh, looks forward to the destruction of the Jews as a race of people because their hands are full of the blood of uh, Christ and full of the blood of killing all the righteous people, right? So with this establishment of of Jesus being sort of, uh, his his death being incorporated into this cultural script of the killing of the prophets, there is this uh, trope that is continued to be harnessed by by these uh, violent groups
2: today. Yeah, thank you for that, and also I suppose for reflecting on sort of what's brought you to this place in your research and how that affects thinking about modern reading strategies and the ethical imperatives in that, and sort of actively combating anti-Judaism. I wonder uh you have a discussion sort of early on in the book talking about the distinction between anti-Judaism and uh, anti-Semitism, and particularly from a modern perspective, how we read ancient texts and how that terminology is useful where we might want to distinguish between the two in terms of looking at ancient texts. Um, I wonder if you just sort of say a little bit about that, um, help us sort of kind of figure out what those two terms might be doing in different contexts.
4: Right, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question and it's really helpful to think about. Um, for me, um, whenever I immerse myself in the literature of anti-Jewishness uh, and anti-Semitism, I found that in general the term anti-Semitism tends to be associated uh, with this idea of uh, racial uh, hatred of Jews for the simple fact that they are Jews and that this idea is particularly associated uh, with the, the rise of Nazi Germany, right? And so for me, I didn't want to to use that term in reference to ancient texts uh, to avoid any sort of anachronistic overtones that that, uh, that, that term uh, can elicit. So I I stuck to the term anti-Jew, uh, anti-Jewishness, or anti-Jewish, or anti-Judaism, Christian anti-Judaism, um, to describe the uh, construction of cultural systems that construe uh, Jews and Judaism. Uh, according to uh, negative stereotypes, uh, to uh, these uh, compressed sort of ethical codes, uh, Jews being uh, less ethical than than other peoples, or to ideological patterns that inferiorize uh, Jews and Judaism, particularly in relationship to to Christians and Christianity. I liked using uh, the term anti-Jewish to describe these uh, instead of anti-Semitism, because a lot of these ancient texts aren't Necessarily outright espousing hatred of Jewish people, right? Um, and I thought that could also be a really good teaching moment for trying to teach um, p- uh, people in contemporary contexts and, and, and in certain uh, Christian circles about the dangerousness of anti-Jewish uh, rhetoric. Uh, because a lot of, a lot of people, um, particularly from my background, they're, they're not hateful people. Um, they don't harbor any ill will towards people, but at the same time, they think that because they have good intentions, um, that they don't intend to harm anyone. That if they think that uh, Jews are inferior in some way to Christi- to Christians, that that's not directly impacting the lived experience of of Christian or of Jews. And so I really wanted to com- combat that idea and show how uh, seemingly innocuous. Ideological patterns of thought are really actually inherently dangerous because they can fuel, they can authorize, and lend approval to uh, the negative experiences that Jews continue to, to to face today.
3: Thanks. I think I think the that delineation between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism is actually really critical, and this t- ties in with your work on social memory, in that to read all forms of ancient anti-Judaism as anti-Semitism within the context of a post-Holocaust frame uh, means that we, we end up reading things back into the texts that, that weren't there. Yeah. Conversely, then, some scholars have argued that uh, you can't say that many of these texts are anti-Jewish if they are Jewish themselves. So, thinking you know, very concretely, uh, Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews seems to frame certain things as the Jewish... The fault of the Jewish people, as we talked about earlier, with uh, Herod's defeat at, um, being the result of his execution of John the Baptist. What What are your thoughts on Jewish anti-Judaism? I mean, does does that category even exist? Uh, can it exist?
4: No, that's a really good question, and it's really complicated. Um, I think uh, I've been reading a lot, actually, in critical race theory uh, here recently, and uh, they they talk a lot about how uh, self-hatred is also possible or self-inferiorization, internalizing sort of uh, self-inferiorization is is possible as well. So I do think it's possible for for Jewish texts themselves uh, to to also espouse ideas that that Christians then can capitalize on and and become forms of Christian anti-Judaism. But we have to also be careful there that we're not then just putting blame back on Jews for any sort of negative experiences that they face as well so it is really uh, really complicated um, in that respect
3: I think yeah you've really highlighted the complexity of the issue I mean okay we're, we're reading these things two thousand years on um, from mm-hmm. from their author well 1900 years on minors from their authorship to try yeah. and get ourselves back into the text is actually quite a difficult task
4: yeah it's also, it's also one thing for there to be Jewish traditions that, that existed in antiquity about how, you know, certain uh, disobedient Jews, you know, killed, you know, God's prophets like Isaiah in the past. I mean, those traditions exist, but it's another thing then for someone to take that and to then justify centuries later, uh, the violence uh, that is being applied to Jews, right? So that's, that's really uh where where i I sort of come into play on on this conversation is it's it's one thing for for even jewish sources to say that uh you know the spirit is you know no longer among among the people i think that you can find that in some rabbinic sources it's another thing then for christians to take that as an essential way for them to construct their identity by by saying oh jews don't have the spirit we do and using uh jews as just sort of this launching pad to to announce their own superiority so i, I think there's some there's some room for some differentiation there as well
2: so dot shed Having uh, identified these different patterns of um, anti-Jewish rhetoric in ancient texts and tracing that into, um, I guess, sort of some forms of modern rhetoric, and we've talked a little bit about a couple of examples of that um, in this recording. Um, how do we move into sort of thinking about strategies for actually dismantling that, for combating that um, within Christian communities and, and more widely? Uh,
4: thanks, Grace. Uh, that's that's a really good question. Um, one of the uh, main ideas in the book is that uh, any articulation of the past represents this complex interaction, right between the received past and the uh, present context from which uh, any act of memory takes place. Um, so in light of um, uh, in light of observing how just a martyr and Origen map the Herodian court's uh, treatment and execution of John the Baptist onto, Contemporary Jews in the 2nd and 3rd century. I think one place the anti-Jewishness needs to be dismantled Is in this impulse in some circles to apply the text To the present uh, to to filter uh, the the present uh, our present uh, Through the images of the past Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that uh, you know for those that uh, hold New Testament texts or um, early church fathers as, as authoritative for interpreting sacred texts, that people should stop trying to apply the text to their life in some capacity. Um, what I'm saying is that we shouldn't be under any obligation to recreate harmful patterns of thinking that have been proven uh, to cause harm uh, to, uh, to Jews throughout history. I think we need to learn to say that this or that text doesn't apply here. We, we shouldn't bring this or that passage or this or that idea or the, the structure of how uh, these two groups of people are uh, in relationship to one another. We don't have to be under obligation to uh, make that the filter through which we view uh, the world necessarily. Um, we need to learn that ancient textual portrayals of non non cross following Jews and Christians are highly polemical um, and that they often caricature uh, their opponents, uh, their Jewish opponents. Um, I think that we can uh, we need to resist uh, expressions of identity that re- that rely on a negative Jewish foil. Um, and there's a lot of people already doing uh, that sort of work. Matthew Teessen in his book. Uh, Jesus and the Forces of Death talks a lot about how uh, Jesus is often um, constructed as this uh, anti-law, anti-ritualistic, full of full of uh, love person, um, whereas uh, the Jewish leadership in Second Temple Judaism are highly ritualistic, uh, legalistic, and uh, don't have a loving bone in their body, that sort of thing. So uh, taking... Uh, Learning to uh, realize that that those expressions of, our, of identity are first off wrongheaded um, historically, um, but also that they don't need to be essential to constructing uh, one's own identity today. And also read academic books uh, by Jewish authors. I think one way that if, if one has grown up in a context where anti-Jewish uh, modes of thinking persist, where, Implicitly, maybe people don't realize that they think uh, Jewish ideology is inferior to Christian I- ideology uh, or, uh, Chris, or Jewish uh, ethical codes are inferior to Christian ethical codes. Um, one way that we can uh, dismantle that idea is by actually reading uh, Jewish authors and seeing that uh, they're, they're full of intellectual uh, richness um, and that uh, they're great ethical and moral thinkers uh, out there for, for people to read and to broaden the horizons.
0: Well, Dr. Shed, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the beheading of John the Baptist and the tradition and how it developed in early Christianity and some of the sort of sad anti-Jewish ways in which that, that developed and was utilized and for thinking about modern articulations of anti-Judaism within Christianity and how we can avoid some of that. Just really appreciate having you on for this.